90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm suffering through this cold, but I'm here. How about you? <laughs> oh, pretty good. Uh, I did not know if we were going to get a show this week or yep. not. <laughs> we had, uh, you've been traveling and then had a bunch of stuff come up and FedEx overnight shipments that turned out to not be overnight, kind of put me in binds. Uh, so it's been a fun week. Uh, yeah, it's been super hectic as well. Um, I had two field trips essentially back to back. So I've been gone for the last week out west, um, but it was worth it because I love it out west. And uh, it's been really busy. <laughs> and I had a bit of your luck, John, I have to say, on the plane ride back yesterday. Oh, no. Did you get delayed? <laughs> we did. We got delayed in Phoenix um, for waiting for a plane for 30 people on our plane to get there, which was nice. That was great as Southwest. They're really good because these people, it's the last plane in Oklahoma City. But then the potty broke, and so <laughs> we oh, no. had to sit on the tarmac without the lab. And finally, they just decided to call it quits because there was a lot of weather coming in, and so there was no toilet on the plane. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that does sound like some of my travel luck. I, I know that uh, we were intending on recording last night, and you said, I'll let you know when I land. And I just never heard anything until 2 a.m. Yeah, 2 a.m. was when we got in. um, All four broken broken labs. So that that felt like you were traveling with us for sure. (laughs) Glad to know. uh, Glad to know I was there in spirit anyway. Exactly. Uh, So we flew in the middle of a thunderstorm, and I've never been actually in the lightning in a plane. So that was exciting. All my students had seen the Nova special about sprites and jets and were asking me tons of questions. So that was pretty fun. Yeah, it's like a almost pseudo Lagrangian view of a thunderstorm. Uh, yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, they, they were disappointed that we couldn't see any, but you know, it was exciting. So we're back, and I think that's what we're going to talk about today: is our travels out west, right? Yeah. So this was two field trips, you said, and I knew you were going out into the field. I saw some pictures on Twitter, but we never had the chance to talk about what you were actually <laughs> doing. I think it's because we didn't know what we were actually doing until we get there. You've been on our field trips. You know that's how we go. It's true. <laughs> um, so we combined two classes. There's a graduate level paleomagnetism class and then also my catastrophic sedimentation class. Since the enrollment overlaps between the two classes, we decided to combine the field trips. And we flew out to Las Vegas last week, which is a terrifying place to take a bunch of college students <laughs> but <Rain. laughs> but we stay outside of Las Vegas and um, what we did is um, my graduate students collected a lot of data for their thesis um, outside of town in some of the Mississippian carbonates so that was fun there are these things called zebra dolomites and um, I don't know if you remember seeing them on any field trips um, I know you've seen the rocks before but they're these interlacing bands of black and white dolomites they look like zebras And so we're looking for magnetism in those zebra dolomites. It's actually still really controversial how they form. And so we're trying to get timing on how they form. And it's kind of a big deal because carbonate diagenesis is pretty difficult. So are you trying to get the magnetism of each band of color or just as a whole, the, the net? Or do you think there's any difference? Well, 
Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, we our sampler is uh, we don't have micro samplers, so it's an inch across, and the banding is usually less than that. So we can't really get like a white or a black band. Um, we have put them into some really high-powered SEMs to try to figure out if there's any mineralogical differences really that would indicate that magnetic minerals were preferential to white or black bands, but. We haven't actually seen that yet. It seems to be a whole rock sort of phenomenon. Um, what's cool is we haven't looked at these Mississippian-aged uh, zebra dolomites before, so it's kind of a new data point for us. We've got a lot of other data about Devonian um, zebra carbonates, but nothing about the Mississippian. So that's new. Yeah. So that was the paleomag part, but you said that you also went out there with uh, your catastrophic seg class. So what kind of catastrophic said did you look at uh it was it was pretty funny um the field trip was only three days long actually it was two and a half days long so it was really quick um and so we called it geotourism because we (laughs) just went as fast as we could to all these different places the coolest thing we did was we went to glen canyon dam so at the start of the uh grand canyon we got to have a dam tour and we had talked a lot about sedimentation behind dams what could happen you know, when dams fail. And um, my students each took a topic on the trip and gave presentations at each of the locations. Um, we actually got rained out in Vegas on the PMAG trip one day, which never has ever has happened in the 10 years we've been sampling out there. No. It was torrential rain. And so we hightailed it out of town and got to go to Hoover Dam as well. Um, so it was really great for my students. So we got to go to Hoover uh, down at the bottom and then Glen Canyon Dam at the top and we talked a lot about the sedimentation behind them, but also how it affects the movement of sandbars and sediment downriver, just because of the presence of these dams in the first place in the Colorado River. Right, I mean, they've had some really significant impacts uh, in terms of sediment transport and what that means for the whole ecological system, right? Uh, exactly. Um, we have some cool videos actually following like sandbar migration. I'll put a link in the, to those in the show notes. Um, but it's a lot to do with the sediment that used to be there in the Colorado isn't there because it's getting trapped behind these dams. And since 1996, they've actually started doing controlled floods. They don't call it that because floods sound catastrophic and awful. Um, What is it? It's like high release days or something like this where they're trying to restore some of that sediment. The problem is doing that for like two days a year isn't really mimicking a natural process. So what they're doing is dumping a lot of sediment and water into the system again, but it actually leaves fairly quickly. It doesn't stick around because it's not a natural flow regime and it just gets washed down to the next dam down the river. So we're trying, but it's not really working out. We talked a lot about that in the class just because it's a weird thing to try to mimic mother nature and then Right. It seems like we're failing at it pretty bad. And it's doing all kinds of things for the the species downstream. You know, it's inviting in, I think there's these New Zealand snails or something that are overrunning everything, and there's nothing to prey on them, so they're doing a lot of damage to the ecosystems, like within these little, you know, turns and bends of the Colorado. So, Wow, so you did that for three days of geotourism and how many days was the the paleomag sampling part um so that was three days as well um we left and we were out there friday night and then saturday sunday and monday and like i said sunday 
torrential rain. There were all kinds of floods all over Las Vegas. Um, and we basically just followed it east because my trip, we took off for Page, Arizona, stayed at Glen Canyon. We went to Lee's Ferry, which is the put-in for all the river rafting trips. It's basically the only place you can get down to the Colorado and put in. So that was really neat. Um, right at Lee's Ferry is, it's Lee's Ferry, it's named because that was one of the first actual places to cross the Colorado. Um, founded by um, a Mormon guy, John Lee, I think. Um, and so he came in and made a way across the Colorado there. It was this terrifying looking thing. But now it's a place, um, there, there's a lot of camping and it's a low spot. It's where the Perea River comes in. And so you can see the confluence between the two rivers and it makes a thing called a uh, riffle there or rifle. I don't know how to say it. Uh, yeah, I don't know whether it's riffle or rifle. You have to remember you're talking to uh, <laughs> a geophysicist here. Um, well, it's not called a rapid because it's actually not large enough. Um, it's a pretty low gradient where the Perea meets the Colorado. But it's actually really cool because of all the rain that was happening while we were out there. There was a huge density difference in the waters just because of all the sediment that was in the Perea that wasn't in the Colorado. And so... It was a really great thing. If you're out near the Grand Canyon, you need to go upstream and go to Lee's Ferry and watch the confluence of these two rivers. It really demonstrates a lot of hydrologic f flow features. It was cool because there was a bunch of debris in the river and it had actually um, stabilized a big sandbar in the middle of the river that isn't usually there. And there are all these sort oh, of cool. like lateral waves coming across it that were 90 degrees to current. And then in the backwater, it formed all sorts of eddies and, you know, vorticities that were not usually there. It was really cool. Nice. Nice. So we actually had some uh, interesting precipitation here, too, while you were gone. Uh-oh. Uh, it's not quite the end of October, but we have had snow here now. What? Uh, <laughs> it uh, oh it rained, gosh. and then it kind of sleeted, and then it um, was almost grapple. Uh, little chunks of ice. Those are my favorite. Uh, and then some snow, and it did that two days in a row, and now it's 70 degrees outside. Uh, <laughs> but, awesome. <laughs> yeah, so the really the only thing that I did while you were gone, uh, other than uh, battle some 3D printer issues, <laughs> uh, was watch uh, pumpkin sedimentation. <laughs> Delicious. We, uh, we went out to the... In Howard, Pennsylvania, not very far from here, a bunch of us from the geoscience department uh, went and watched our local version of Pumpkin Chunkin, where people <laughs> build giant machines to shoot pumpkins. I can't, up to I can't about believe half a mile. you did not enter this. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, our uh, apartment complex, I think, would frown on a giant trebuchet <laughs> in the parking lot. <laughs> or they would welcome it. I don't know. I think you need to find that out. Um, how far did these <laughs> things go? Uh, so here, the maximum was not quite half a mile. Wow! Uh, <laughs> and that's for an, a little over an eight-pound pumpkin. Wow! The uh, the national competition, there is a national pumpkin chunking competition, is in Delaware. Of course uh, there is. <laughs> but some of the larger machines uh, can shoot the pumpkins over a mile now. A mile? Yes. A pumpkin, pumpkin flying through really the air? Tiny. Yes. <laughs> That sounds uh, deadly. 
There are, oh yes, uh, I'll put some links in the show notes to videos of these. Uh, a centripetal machine was the best one this year. Uh, it's actually powered by people on bikes. Oh, no kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, but last year there was an air gun that they actually had to turn down. We do this over a, a lake here, and the air cannon was mounted on pretty much a semi-tractor trailer. Uh, it was very huge, and it would shoot all the way across the lake, and there's a road there. <laughs> And they didn't want to do that, so they actually had to turn it down. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. So these are not just your backyard scientists. These are serious. <laughs> there are a few small ones that are, I would say, tabletop to small trailer trailerable, but a lot of these are on giant gooseneck trailers or semi-trailers uh, as well. That's amazing. They're hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you can shoot a pumpkin a mile. That's pretty impressive. Occasionally when they shoot it uh, as well, it is too much force in the pumpkin fragments. They call it making pie. (laughs) I feel like there's a fun paper Friday in here somewhere. (laughs) You know, there has to be. I do have a pumpkin fun paper Friday for next week. Oh, excellent. Uh, Halloween is on Thursday. Saturday. No, Halloween's on Saturday. (laughs) We're doing it Thursday here. I don't totally understand why. Oh, okay. Um, but they're doing it Thursday in town, so actually it'll be just in time because we'll release on Friday. So ah, look excellent. forward to uh, look forward to that next week. That is excellent. Um, on Friday, I will or on Halloween itself, I will be traveling to GSA. So I think the mass exodus to Baltimore will be taking place um, for the annual Geological Society meeting. I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, that should be great, and you're going to have the uh, the poster there, so just a reminder to people, stop by and see Shannon and a poster about the show if you're at GSA. What day is that? Uh, well, GSA starts on Sunday through Wednesday, and our poster, Podcasting as an Outreach and Teaching Tool, Lessons Learned from Year One of Don't Panic Geocast, is on Sunday. Um, we're, if you're interested, we're in session number 35, which is digital technology in real and virtual science, geoscience experiences. And um, our poster booth number is 173. So I will be at my poster 3.30 on Sunday afternoon, November 1st, if anyone listening wants to stop by. Yeah, that'd be great. If you do, make sure you uh, tweet a photo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we'll definitely uh, get that going. Um, I think it should be a good uh, good experience. I'm excited to meet other people, hopefully, that are doing sort of the same things and talk about their experiences trying to um, do digital outreach. Right. So I guess before we go into the, the last segment of our show... Uh, did you guys do anything else uh, really exciting uh, while you were out on your trip? Besides the Grand Canyon, which a lot of my students hadn't been to, um, that's always an exciting thing to take geologists to the Grand Canyon for the first time. Um, it's really priceless to see their reactions to it because, I mean, the Grand Canyon, it represents two billion years of Earth history, and it's this super young feature, right? It's like eight to ten million years old, and it's just breathtaking it really is that's the only way to say it so that was really fun um but we also got to go to meteor crater in winslow arizona so that was really exciting too um (laughs) i know we're both pretty much space nerds so meteor crater is one of those fun touristy things to do but one of my students did a talk on um, extinctions and it was actually quite interesting to think about because meteor crater is this tiny little crater And uh, there's some really good, maybe we'll have it as a fun paper Friday, there's some really good uh, literature out there about Meteor Crater. It's really young. 
and about its effects on the biota around it, because it's only less than 50,000 years old. Right. We had a fun paper uh, a few episodes back now, maybe two or three months ago, actually, uh, that described what the author thought happened when (laughs) the meteor impacted. That was uh, a little graphic. It's my favorite paper (laughs) of all time. Um, So if you didn't see that one about the air shock effects by Kring, go back and look that up on our website because it is just fantastic. Um, So there is a lot of other stories about extinction that we talked about there and a lot of thoughts about um, mass extinctions, what defines a mass extinction. And now that we sort of are focusing, or I guess there's a push in paleontology to focus on the micro, um, a lot of numbers have been revised about mass extinctions and the amount of life on Earth, because now we're looking at our own individual biomes, essentially. You know, unfortunately, we're not alone in our body. (laughs) Or fortunately, (laughs) there's millions of little things living with us. Um, And so my student gave this number. I thought it was really cool. So it's an estimate that 0.01% is the number of life that's living right now. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it used to be something like 0.1%, he said, but now when they add in all these bacteria and everything else that um, we're getting to know more about, it's 0.01% of all life on Earth is living now. So I thought that was an interesting stat. Yeah, that's uh, that's more surprising than the statistic in our exactly. uh, show intro. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's exactly what I thought about. Um, and then when you think about mass extinctions in the past, you know, there have been five big ones, but uh, the Permian... Triassic mass extinction, you know, they think that 97%, that's the high-end estimate, um, of life on Earth was snuffed out. So from there, moving forward, 3% lived and flourished. We got dinosaurs. And then at the, not Cretaceous tertiary anymore, but the Cretaceous paleogene extinction, you know, up to 50% of life on Earth died. And then we tried again, right? So now we represent this 0.01% of life that's ever lived. It was, it was kind of sobering, and it was neat to sit there looking at Meteor Crater and to think about these huge processes because Meteor Crater's a mile across. You know, Chicxulub is hundreds. So it was a cool analog, very modern analog to a lot of, you know, ancient geological catastrophes. Yeah, even though when you're at Meteor Crater, it seems huge it does uh, <laughs> it really does really a drop in the bucket and just i mean that air shock paper the effects from something that was that small it, it's hard to imagine multiplying that you know a few orders of magnitude up exactly uh we had a t- we had a lot of talks about that because obviously that was catastrophic for those poor things that essentially were living there and turned inside out due to the not from the meteor hitting but due to the shock wave pre-meteor um and then to scale it up to these global phenomenon. And there's actually <laughs> as cheesy a place as it is, which I love it. It's wonderful. The museum has some cool demos in there where you can change what kind of bolide is about to hit Earth. You can change the angle of impact. You can change the densities and see you know, what it does. And it'll show you Earth analogs to the size of the impactor that you made. Or you can also get total annihil- annihilation, which was what my students were trying to achieve every time they ran it. Right. (laughs) Which is pretty impressive. It says you killed the whole earth and, you know, it explodes and it's pretty fun. So um, if you're out that way, it's totally worth the 
16 bucks to get in and um, go see Meteor Crater because you get really up close to this very classically formed, simple crater. Wow. And so actually, as you're hearing this show on Friday, uh, you might still be able to see a trace of uh, the Orionids uh, meteor shower that peaked uh, Wednesday early morning. And that's actually the tale of Halley's Comet. So yes. it's, <laughs> it's uh, been pretty nice. We've had some clear nights here. I oh. uh, haven't seen too many meteors thanks to the city lights, uh, but we did have the, the International Space Station pass over a couple times, so that was neat to see. Man, yeah, we were clouded in the whole time because we also went to, for the last thing, because I know this is near and dear to your heart too, um, we also got to go to the Lowell Observatory there in Flagstaff. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's an amazing place. <laughs> so after our Pluto show, I was super excited, right, because Pluto was discovered there um, by Clyde Tombaugh based on Percival Lowe's um, calculations of where it would be. And so I figured that there would be a lot of cool new stuff with New Horizons, and there was. It was not disappointing. <laughs> Um, what was disappointing was that it had just rained, and so none of the scopes were out because of the humidity, which oh. was super sad. Um, there was one little 10-inch scope, I mean little 10-inch scope, that <laughs> that some grad student from NAU had out there. So we at least got to see the moon, but the, the humidity was just way too high to expose the other telescopes there. Uh, we also stumbled into a poster session, which was super awesome. And um, on habitable places on Mars. Oh, uh-huh. cool. And it was focusing on caves. And so there was a lot of Earth analogs to caves you might see on Mars based on rock type. And then there was a lot of um, sort of looking at some of the Mars um, reconnaissance pictures and trying to identify caves on Mars and see what their morphology would possibly be based on, you know, infrared and pictures. And there was a lot of 3D printed caves. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd be pretty excited about that. Um, and so we just actually wandered into one of the museums there and this poster session was just getting over. And the guy said, you guys probably don't, you know, just walk behind the posters. And we said, we're geologists. We're actually super excited about this. <laughs> and so he kind of showed us around the posters um, and the 3D renderings were really neat. Um, so that was cool. And then we got to see a New Horizons talk, which was just unbelievable, right? I mean, to see right. all this data from Pluto and to sit there where it was discovered and then talk about this. And obviously it ended with talking about whether um, Pluto would be voted to be a planet next time in two years when the International Astronomical Union meets again. Right. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, that sounds awesome. Lowell Observatory is one of my favorite places uh, to stop in when I'm out that way. And 3D printing is another. We we have to have a 3D printing show at some time. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, um, I saw those little 3D printed caves, and I got pretty excited. <laughs> so it was neat, you know, and it's to go along with all this Martian stuff. Obviously, that's sort of the impetus for this. But um, it, it was really cool to see the stuff, how, you know, if you're going to live on another planet, you probably need a cave which is funny yep. because we're going to take all this technology and go back to living how we lived thousands of years ago. <laughs> In games. <laughs> exactly. <Yep. laughs> um, so that was our whirlwind trip. Um, there wasn't a lot of catastrophic sedimentation that happened, but it was neat to see all the rain because you could tell how it affects that desert landscape so, so in such a short amount of time. 
a small amount of right. rain in a short amount of time can actually move a lot of sediment. So we saw that. We got to do some cool science. We did, you know, some astronomy. It was a whirlwind, but super awesome trip for us. Well, that's great. So I have one question to uh, unplanned lead us into our fun paper Friday. <laughs> of, did you get stuck in any traffic? <laughs> um, well, we did go through Phoenix right about rush hour. So this fun paper hit home a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so this is called Experimental Features of Self-Organization in Traffic Flow <laughs> by Kerner. And this is actually a paper from 1998, but from what I can tell from reading online, this is one of the seminal works in traffic flow (laughs) management. We've talked about traffic before. You're obsessed with this topic, I think. (laughs) Well, I just find it really interesting when mathematically you can predict the conditions that cause these semi-chaotic behaviors uh, or even periodic behaviors. Yeah in systems where you know you're modeling cars and people as uh, car molecules and this kind of thing it's (laughs) it's really nice uh and so it basically talks about stop and go traffic and what causes it and how sometimes you can have stop and go traffic uh, when there's no interruption on the road really (laughs) it just there's a bottleneck that for some reason happens and just stays there for days. Uh, yeah, I thought that was really weird. Um, I think one of the things that probably makes it seminal is that, um, you know, he talked about the previous work had said that there's no way that you can't have stop and go traffic, right? Right. And then now they did more modeling and maybe that's not necessarily the case. Right. But it's pretty easy to fall into the stop and go traffic (laughs) solution. Uh, And actually, the way I found this paper, I'll put a link in the show notes. A few weeks ago, there was a traffic jam in China that was massive. It was 50 lanes merging to 20. And somebody had a drone uh, video of this. It was a new toll booth that it opened. And just as far as you could see, thousands, probably tens of thousands of cars uh, in this stop-and-go traffic pattern. Uh, I'm still stuck on 50 lanes. (laughs) Yeah, it said that uh, traffic is really bad there and that the average person commuting uh, would spend nine days per year in their car. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So (laughs) this this paper kind of connected to that, and it's some really nice science in it. Uh, Basically, what they're saying is, you know, you can have cars that are going down the road in your regular pseudo-random traffic pattern, but then as the density of cars on the road goes up, you fall into a very even, they call it synchronous flow, where everybody maintains the minimum safe distance from other cars and you're all going about the same speed because the road is at capacity. And in that system, any small perturbation propagates (laughs) and starts the stop and go traffic. Uh, Yep. (laughs) Yeah. And I thought the way that uh, they did this was really elegant they had 24 induction loop detectors underneath the road Uh, so this would count cars and tell you the car's speed and then they made graphs of the car's speed in each lane at different points down the road with time Mm -hmm. and you can see this really it looks kind of like a double pendula solution (laughs) Uh, 
and the cars are going from 80 kilometers an hour to zero to 80 to zero to 60 to zero to... <laughs> yes <laughs> yep just the little spiky lanes um i thought it was cool how they talked about how these little the narrow jams how they propagate throughout the column of traffic yeah, so they actually propagate upstream. Right. <laughs> uh, it sounds a little bit like just some geologic process. I know. <laughs> that's that's what I was thinking. I was like, these are like anti-dunes that um, are propagating again, up against. That's actually pretty interesting. We could look at that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just a really... A paper shows how complicated traffic management is. You know, anytime that you think, oh, this intersection's awful... Uh, I'm very guilty of saying, I'm sorry if there are any of you listening. <laughs> oh, you see that? An engineer did that. <laughs> uh, I say that every day. <laughs> uh, it's just really, really hard to manage, especially with not knowing the exact traffic volumes or when things get swamped, uh, the whole system can break down and just take days to recover because it's in this chaotic state. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, I thought it was cool how much I just I like the sort of history of it and how much the thoughts on it had changed just over, you know, tens of years. And think of how slow it takes infrastructure to be implemented, you know. Right. So you've got infrastructure implemented on these old ideas and then you do some new research and, you know, is it going to ever get changed? Probably not. Right. (laughs) No. And there is another paper that uh, we didn't read for the official fun paper Friday. I'm going to go ahead and link it. It's Flynn et al., uh, 2009. It's called Self-Sustained Nonlinear Waves and Traffic Flow, which is a intense mathematical formalization of this paper. Uh, this paper that we're talking about doesn't have a lot of math in it. It reads pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this paper is 13 pages of some pretty hardcore <laughs> stability analysis Ooh. but if if you're into that if you're into a uh, differential equation and complex systems it's definitely worth having a look at no that's that's awesome um i like to we talked a lot about the hydraulic flow in the river and in the colorado because that has a lot to do with both engineering on the dams and how you move sediment and i mean this has a lot of the same sort of you would analyze it in the same way. So it's kind of neat, even though it's traffic, <laughs> you know, you can think of it, it's the exact same physics. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. And you know, we have these uh, self-organized features to thank for most of our listeners because they're trapped in their cars. <laughs> <laughs> May your well, narrow jams be, be prolific. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope that you are not stuck in traffic, but if you are, or when you're in a place that is safe to do so, we would appreciate it if you would send us some feedback or your fun paper suggestions. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, you can send us those suggestions um, at show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're always on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. Right. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.